Section 41 of Mark Twain, A Biography. Part 1, 1900-1907. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Mark Twain, A Biography. By Albert Bigelow Payne. Chapter 252. Theology and Evolution. From the Washington trip dates a period of still closer association with Mark Twain. On the way to New York he suggested that I take up residence in his house, a privilege which I had no wish to refuse. There was room going to waste, he said, and it would be handier for the early and late billiard sessions. So after that, most of the days and nights, I was there. Looking back on that time now, I see pretty vividly three quite distinct pictures. One of them, the rich red interior of the billiard-room with the brilliant green square in the center, on which the gay balls are rolling, and bending over it that luminous white figure in the instant of play. Then there is the long, lighted drawing-room, with the same figure stretched on a couch in the corner, drowsily smoking, while the rich organ-tones fill the place summoning for him scenes and faces which others do not see. This was the hour between dinner and billiards, the hour which he found most restful of the day. Sometimes he rose, walking the length of the parlors, his step timed to the music and his thought. Of medium height he gave the impression of being tall, his head thrown up, and like a lion's, rather large for his body. But oftener he lay among the cushions, the light flooding his white hair and dress and heightening his brilliant coloring. The third picture is that of the dinner-table, always beautifully laid and always a shrine of wisdom when he was there. He did not always talk, but it was his habit to do so, and memory holds the clearer vision of him when, with eyes and face alive with interest, he presented some new angle of thought in fresh picturesqueness of speech. These are the pictures that have remained to me out of the days spent under his roof, and they will not fade while memory lasts. Of Mark Twain's table philosophies it seems proper to make rather extended record. They were usually unpremeditated, and they presented the man as he was and thought. I preserved as much of them as I could, and have verified phrase and idea, when possible, from his own notes and other unprinted writings. The dinner-table talk naturally varied in character from that of the billiard-room. The latter was likely to be anecdotal and personal. The former was more often philosophical and commentative, ranging through a great variety of subjects, scientific, political, sociological, and religious. His talk was often of infinity, the forces of creation, and it was likely to be satire of the orthodox conceptions intermingled with heresies of his own devising. Once, after a period of general silence, he said, No one who thinks can imagine the universe made by chance. It is too nicely assembled and regulated. There is, of course, a great master mind, but it cares nothing for our happiness or our unhappiness. It was objected by one of those present that, as the infinite mind suggested perfect harmony, sorrow and suffering were defects which that mind must feel and eventually regulate. Yes, he said, 
not a sparrow falls but he is noticing if that is what you mean but the human conception of it is that god is sitting up nights worrying over the individuals of this infinitesimal race then he recalled a fancy which i have since found among his memoranda in this note he had written the suns and planets that form the constellations of a billion billion solar systems and go pouring a tossing flood of shining globes through the viewless arteries of space are the blood corpuscles in the veins of god and the nations are the microbes that swarm and wiggle and brag in each and think god can tell them apart at that distance and has nothing better to do than try this the entertainment of an eternity who so poor in his ambitions as to consent to be god on those terms blasphemy no it is not blasphemy if god is as vast as that he is above blasphemy if he is as little as that he is beneath it the bible he said reveals the character of its god with minute exactness it is a portrait of a man if one can imagine a man with evil impulses far beyond the human limit in the old testament he is pictured as unjust ungenerous pitiless and revengeful punishing innocent children for the misdeeds of their parents punishing unoffending people for the sins of their rulers even descending to bloody vengeance upon harmless calves and sheep as punishment for puny trespasses committed by their proprietors it is the most damnatory biography that ever found its way into print its beginning is merely childish adam is forbidden to eat the fruit of a certain tree and gravely informed that if he disobeys he shall die how could that impress adam he could have no idea of what death meant he had never seen a dead thing he had never heard of one if he had been told that if he ate the apples he would be turned into a meridian of longitude that threat would have meant just as much as the other one the watery intellect that invented that notion could be depended on to go on and decree that all of adam's descendants down to the latest day should be punished for that nursery trespass in the beginning 
there is a curious poverty of invention in bibles most of the great races each have one and they all show this striking defect each pretends to originality without possessing any each of them borrows from the other confiscates old stage properties puts them forth as fresh and new inspirations from on high we borrowed the golden rule from confucius after it had seen service for centuries and copyrighted it without a blush we went back to babylon for the deluge and are as proud of it and as satisfied with it as if it had been worth the trouble whereas we know now that noah's flood never happened and couldn't have happened not in that way the flood is a favorite with bible-makers another favorite with the founders of religions is the immaculate conception it had been worn threadbare but we adopted it as a new idea it was old in egypt several thousand years before christ was born the hindus prized it ages ago the egyptians adopted it even for some of their kings the romans borrowed the idea from greece we got it straight from heaven by way of rome we are still charmed with it he would continue in this strain rising occasionally and walking about the room once considering the character of god the bible god he said we haven't been satisfied with god's character as it is given in the old testament we have amended it we have called him a god of mercy and love and morals he didn't have a single one of those qualities in the beginning he didn't hesitate to send the plagues on egypt the most fiendish punishments that could be devised not for the king but for his innocent subjects the women and the little children and then only to exhibit his power just to show off and he kept hardening pharaoh's heart so that he could send some further ingenuity of torture new rivers of blood and swarms of vermin and new pestilences merely to exhibit samples of his workmanship now and then during the forty years wandering moses persuaded him to be a little more lenient with the israelites which would show that moses was the better character of the two that old testament god never had an inspiration of his own he referred to the larger conception of god that infinite mind which had projected the universe he said in some details 
that old Bible God is probably a more correct picture than our conception of that incomparable one that created the universe and flung upon its horizonless ocean of space those giant suns whose signal lights are so remote that we only catch their flash when it has been a myriad of years on its way for that supreme one is not a god of pity or mercy not as we recognize these qualities think of a god of mercy who would create the typhus germ or the housefly or the centipede or the rattlesnake yet these are all his handiwork they are a part of the infinite plan the minister is careful to explain that all these tribulations are sent for a good purpose but he hires a doctor to destroy the fever germ and he kills the rattlesnake when he doesn't run from it and he sets paper with molasses on it for the housefly two things are quite certain one is that god the limitless god manufactured those things for no man could have done it the man has never lived who could create even the humblest of god's creatures the other conclusion is that god has no special consideration for man's welfare or comfort or he wouldn't have created those things to disturb and destroy him the human conception of pity and morality must be entirely unknown to that infinite god as much unknown as the conception of a microbe to man or at least as little regarded if god ever contemplates those qualities in man he probably admires them as we always admire the thing which we do not possess ourselves probably a little grain of pity in a man or a little atom of mercy would look as big to him as a constellation he could create a constellation with a thought but he has been all the measureless ages and he has never acquired those qualities that we have named pity and mercy and morality he goes on destroying a whole island of people with an earthquake or a whole city full with a plague when we punish a man in the electric chair for merely killing the poorest of our race the human being needs to revise his ideas again about god most of the scientists have done it already but most of them don't 
dare to say so. He pointed out how the moral idea was undergoing constant change, that what was considered justifiable in an earlier day was regarded as highly immoral now. He pointed out that even the Decalogue made no reference to lying except in the matter of bearing false witness against a neighbor. Also, that there was a commandment against covetousness, though covetousness today was the basis of all commerce, the general conclusion being that the morals of the Lord had been the morals of the beginning, the morals of the first created man, the morals of the troglodyte, the morals of necessity, and that the morals of mankind had kept pace with necessity, whereas those of the Lord had remained unchanged. It is hardly necessary to say that no one ever undertook to contradict any statements of this sort from him. In the first place, there was no desire to do so, and in the second place, anyone attempting it would have cut a puny figure with his less substantial arguments and his less vigorous phrase. It was the part of wisdom, and immeasurably the part of happiness, to be silent and listen. On another evening he began, The mental evolution of the species proceeds, apparently, by regular progress side by side with the physical development until it comes to man, then there is a long unexplained gulf. Somewhere man acquired an asset which sets him immeasurably apart from the other animals, his imagination. Out of it he created for himself a conscience and clothes and immodesty and a hereafter and a soul. I wonder where he got that asset. It almost makes one agree with Alfred Russell Wallace that the world and the universe were created just for his benefit, that he is the chief love and delight of God. Wallace says that the whole universe was made to take care of and to keep steady this little floating moat in the center of it, which we call the world. It looks like a good deal of trouble for such a small result, but it's dangerous to dispute with a learned astronomer like Wallace. Still, I don't think we ought to decide too soon about it, not until the returns are all in. There is the geological evidence, for instance. Even after the universe was created, it took a long time to prepare the world for man. Some of the scientists ciphering out the evidence furnished by geology have arrived at the conviction that the world is prodigiously old. Lord Kelvin doesn't agree with them. He says that it isn't more than a hundred million years old, and he thinks the human race 
has inhabited it about thirty thousand years of that time even so it was ninety nine million nine hundred and seventy thousand years getting ready impatient as the creator doubtless was to see man and admire him that was because god first had to make the oyster you can't make an oyster out of nothing nor you can't do it in a day you've got to start with a vast variety of invertebrates belemnites trilobites jebusites amalekites and that sort of fry and put them into soak in a primary sea and observe and wait what will happen some of them will turn out a disappointment the belemnites and the amalekites and such will be failures and they will die out and become extinct in the course of the nineteen million years covered by the experiment but all is not lost for the amalekites will develop gradually into encrinites and stalactites and blatherskites and one thing and another as the mighty ages creep on and the periods pile their lofty crags in the primordial seas and at last the first grand stage in the preparation of the world for man stands completed the oyster is done now an oyster has hardly any more reasoning power than a man has so it is probable this one jumped to the conclusion that the nineteen million years was a preparation for him that would be just like an oyster and anyway this one could not know at that early date that he was only an incident in a scheme and that there was some more to the scheme yet the oyster being finished the next step in the preparation of the world for man was fish so the old silurian seas were opened up to breed the fish in it took twenty million years to make the fish and to fossilize him so we'd have the evidence later then the paleozoic limit having been reached it was necessary to start a new age to make the reptiles man would have to have some reptiles not to eat but to develop himself from thirty million years were required for the reptiles and out of such material as was left were made those stupendous saurians that used to prowl about the steamy world in remote ages with their snaky heads forty feet in the air and their sixty feet of 
body and tail racing and thrashing after them. They are all gone now, every one of them, just a few fossil remnants of them left on this far-flung fringe of time. It took all those years to get one of those creatures properly constructed to proceed to the next step. Then came the pterodactyl, who thought all that preparation all those millions of years had been intended to produce him, for there wasn't anything too foolish for a pterodactyl to imagine. I suppose he did attract a good deal of attention, for even the least observant could see that there was the making of a bird in him, also the making of a mammal, in the course of time. You can't say too much for the picturesqueness of the pterodactyl. He was the triumph of his period. He wore wings and had teeth, and was a starchy-looking creature. But the progression went right along. During the next thirty million years the bird arrived, and the kangaroo, and by and by the mastodon, and the giant sloth, and the Irish elk, and the old Silurian ass, and some people thought that man was about due. But that was a mistake, for the next thing they knew there came a great ice sheet, and those creatures all escaped across the Bering Strait and wandered around in Asia and died, all except a few to carry on the preparation with. There were six of those glacial periods, with two million years or so between each. They chased those poor orphans up and down the earth, from weather to weather, from tropic temperature to fifty degrees below. They never knew what kind of weather was going to turn up next, and if they settled any place, the whole continent suddenly sank from under them, and they had to make a scramble for dry land. Sometimes a volcano would turn itself loose, just as they got located. They led that uncertain, strenuous existence for about twenty-five million years, always wondering what was going to happen next, never suspecting that it was just a preparation for man, who had to be done just so, or there wouldn't be any proper or harmonious place for him when he arrived. And then, at last, the monkey came, and everybody could see at a glance that man wasn't far off now. And that was true enough. The monkey went on developing for close upon five million years, 
and then he turned into a man to all appearances it does look like a lot of fuss and trouble to go through to build anything especially a human being and nowhere along the way is there any evidence of where he picked up that final asset his imagination it makes him different from others not any better but certainly different those earlier animals didn't have it and the monkey hasn't it or he wouldn't be so cheerful editor's note Payne records twain's thoughts in that magnificent essay was the world made for man published long after his death in the group of essays under the title letters from the earth there are minor additions in the published version coal to fry the fish and the remnants of life being chased from pole to pole without a dry rag on them and the coat of paint on top of the bulb on top of the eiffel tower representing man's portion of this world's history he often held forth on the shortcomings of the human race always a favorite subject the incompetencies and imperfections of this final creation in spite of or because of his great attribute the imagination once this was in the billiard-room i started him by saying that whatever the conditions in other planets there seemed no reason why life should not develop in each adapted as perfectly to prevailing conditions as man is suited to conditions here he said is it your idea then that man is perfectly adapted to the conditions of this planet i began to qualify rather weakly but what i said did not matter he was off on his favorite theme man adapted to the earth he said why he can't sleep out of doors without freezing to death or getting the rheumatism or the malaria he can't keep his nose under water over a minute without being drowned he can't climb a tree without falling out and breaking his neck why he's the poorest clumsiest excuse of all the creatures that inhabit this earth he has got to be coddled and housed and swathed and bandaged and upholstered to be able to live at all he is a rickety sort of a thing any way you take him a regular british museum of infirmities and inferiorities he is always undergoing repairs a machine that is as unreliable as he is would have no market the higher animals get their teeth without pain or inconvenience the original caveman the troglodyte may have got his that way but now they come through months and months of cruel torture and at a time of life when he is least able to bear it 
as soon as he gets them they must all be pulled out again for they were of no value in the first place not worth the loss of a night's rest the second set will answer for a while but he will never get a set that can be depended on until the dentist makes one the animals are not much troubled that way in a wild state a natural state they have few diseases their main one is old age but man starts in as a child and lives on diseases to the end as a regular diet he has mumps measles whooping cough croup tonsillitis diphtheria scarlet fever as a matter of course afterward as he goes along his life continues to be threatened at every turn by colds coughs asthma bronchitis quincy consumption yellow fever blindness influenza carbuncles pneumonia softening of the brain diseases of the heart and bones and a thousand other maladies of one sort and another he's just a basket full of festering pestilent corruption provided for the support and entertainment of microbes look at the workmanship of him in some of its particulars what are his tonsils for they perform no useful function they have no value they are but a trap for tonsillitis and quincy and what is the appendix for it has no value its sole interest is to lie and wait for stray grape-seeds and breed trouble what is his beard for it is just a nuisance all nations persecute it with the razor nature however always keeps him supplied with it instead of putting it on his head where it ought to be you seldom see a man bald-headed on his chin but on his head a man wants to keep his hair it is a graceful ornament a comfort the best of all protections against weather and he prizes it above emeralds and rubies and nature half the time puts it on so it won't stay man's sight and smell and hearing are all inferior if he were suited to the conditions he could smell an enemy he could hear him he could see him just as the animals can detect their enemies the robin hears the earthworm burrowing his course under the ground 
the bloodhound follows a scent that is two days old man isn't even handsome as compared with the birds and as for style look at the bengal tiger that ideal of grace physical perfection and majesty think of the lion and the tiger and the leopard and then think of man that poor thing the animal of the wig the ear-trumpet the glass eye the porcelain teeth the wooden leg the trepanned skull the silver windpipe a creature that is mended and patched all over from top to bottom if he can't get renewals of his bric-a-brac in the next world what will he look like he has just that one stupendous superiority his imagination his intellect it makes him supreme the higher animals can't match him there it's very curious a letter which he wrote to j howard moore concerning his book the universal kinship was of this period and seems to belong here dear mr moore the book has furnished me several days of deep pleasure and satisfaction it has compelled my gratitude at the same time since it saves me the labor of stating my own long-cherished opinions and reflections and resentments by doing it lucidly and fervently and irascibly for me there is one thing that always puzzles me as inheritors of the mentality of our reptile ancestors we have improved the inheritance by a thousand grades but in the matter of the morals which they left us we have gone backward as many grades that evolution is strange and to me unaccountable and unnatural necessarily we started equipped with their perfect and blemishless morals now we are wholly destitute we have no real morals but only artificial ones morals created and preserved by the forced suppression of natural and healthy instincts yes we are a sufficiently comical invention we humans sincerely yours s l clemens end of chapter 252 theology and evolution read by john greenman